following message was given by Shelby Murphy on Sunday, July 28th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Good morning. Uh, My name is Shelby, and I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. Um, I can't remember if Brett mentioned, but... uh, we're going to be doing things a little bit differently this morning, things that um, we are not normally um, accustomed to when it comes to the rhythm of our gathering. With that said, it's always good and it's always my distinct joy and pleasure to, to gather with you and to open up God's Word together. Uh, we are in our um, summer psalm series and we've been journeying through different psalms the, the past few weeks. And this morning, as you probably noticed, we're going to be in Psalm 84. So you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, and as long as our projector um, works, it'll be on the screen behind me as well. I hope that as you heard Psalm 84 just now, you could feel and hear some of the, some of the psalmist passion coming through. We hear a lot um, about passion these days. It's pretty much universally extolled as a cardinal virtue. Job recruiters say they're looking for what, what kind of people? Passionate people to fill positions. We're all told to follow our what? Our passions. Artists and musicians are praised for their impassioned performances. And if you're anything like me, you get easily impassioned. Um, uh, advertising gets me passionate about all manners of gadgetry and technology. Social media uh, excites my passions for some world crisis or whatever the current political drama is. And these passions come so quickly and easily that they leave me wondering, are, are these really the things that I should be passionate about? You know, are, are they the most important things? Are they worthy of my passion? Now, as, as Christians, we know the right answer to all those questions. Of course not. We should be most passionate about God, about His Word, about His church, and the spreading of the gospel around the world. But that's really the point here. I, and let me just go out on a limb here and say you as well, don't always feel passionate about those things. I am not that good about being passionate about the right things, um, especially staying passionate about the right things. I mean, every now and then um, I am, I, I'm, I'm sometimes inspired, I'm sometimes provoked, and I have passion for the right things, and I, and I can even stay there for a little while. I'm, I'm so easily distracted by lesser things, by lesser passions, or, or, or my passions just simply fade after a while, and I become disillusioned whenever I try and stir them up, and it just doesn't work. And so it should go without saying here that, that, that our passions can sometimes be problematic. And what I love about Psalm 84 is that we get a front row seat to someone who is passionate about what is most important. This son of Korah, as the inscription says over the passage in your Bible. 
But who were the sons of Korah? I wish I had time this morning to go into their history because it really is a cool, incredible story. And if actually you've been following along in CBR, um, re- the CBR reading the past few weeks, you've actually read about their um, auspicious beginnings there in um, uh, number 16. Go read that this week if you haven't already, as it actually provides some incredible context for these songwriters. Songwriters that we're going to come back to in a few weeks whenever we look at Psalm 42 and 43. But the, but the sons of Korah worked in the temple. They did everything from cleaning and maintaining the temple and all of its artifacts, including the Ark of the Covenant. You know, they, they acted as doorkeepers, letting people in and out of the temple, all the way to being sort of the resident temple singers. One commentator called them janitors, and he called this a janitor psalm. And, and this psalm was written by one of these Korahites as he's traveling back to Jerusalem, going back to the temple where he worked and worshipped, probably in preparation for a specific feast. This is why this psalm is sometimes referred to as, as a pilgrim psalm. Now, we, we don't really know why this Korahite was away from Jerusalem to begin with, but this song describes his journey back. It catalogs his, his long journey. It, it catalogs his inner thoughts um, along this pilgrimage, thoughts that constantly reflect on the Lord, that constantly reflect on his dwelling place and his people. He can't wait to get back. And his passion and his longing for God should serve as an example for us today. It should provoke us. It should cause us to ask questions and evaluate our own lives in light of His example to us. How do we get like that? How do we attain that kind of passion? Or better yet, how do we maintain this kind of passion? How do we get and stay passionate for the right things. And this song helps us to answer those questions. It it just doesn't say, hey, you should be passionate too. Instead, we get to listen in on this psalmist train of thought. We get to overhear what a passionate person loves and longs for, and then how he lives. This psalm invites us to join this pilgrim in what matters most, Ultimately, that, that's why he wrote this, this song, so that we might share in his passions, that we might delight in his delights, that we might hunger after the same longings for the Lord that he has. And Psalm 84 uses a word that shows up a lot in the Psalms, this word blessing or blessed. Now, there's a lot wrapped up into this word. Sometimes you see it translated as happy, but it means so much more than, than that. It literally means the person who has it good. So perhaps the best way to translate this word is by using the phrase, the good life. Someone who is living the good life is blessed. Someone who is blessed is someone who has found the fullest joy, the deepest satisfaction, the truest purpose of life. This, this, this doesn't mean that anything 
bad never comes their way, but whether they're experiencing triumph or trial in this life, they are grounded in a deep joy because they have experienced and they know God. So when you run across this word in your Bible, it should cause you to ask some questions. Who is it here that's living this good life in this particular passage? What does it look like to really flourish here? What does it look like to find joy and happiness in God alone? In a few weeks, we'll look at a few psalms of um, a lament. And even, and even in those psalms, the psalmist is saying, excuse me, but I'm here for the blessed life, and that's not what seems to be happening right now. Even whenever we hear the psalmist arguing with God over something or quibbling with God over something, it's usually on their understanding of this good life, of this blessed life. So Psalm 84 shows us someone who is enjoying a flourishing and blessed life, someone truly living the good life. And this psalm is broken up into three movements, and we know this because of that little word you see popping up twice in your margins, uh, selah. As as Tim mentioned a, a, a few weeks ago, historically, this just simply means that you pause here. You pause for um, uh, reflection. Um, uh, um, honestly, though, no one is really sure what this word means. Uh, more than likely, it is a musical term denoting some sort of musical interlude meant to give people time to reflect on what they just sang or what they just heard. So you can um, uh, remember that next time Jerry melts your face with one of his sweet sax solos, uh, he's just giving you time to reflect on what you just sang. So... See, method to the madness. So in, in the same way, uh, our pilgrim here is walking to Jerusalem and sort of making observations um, uh, along the way. We're going to walk through this psalm together this morning, and I'm going to make some observations um, uh, along the way. Um, each of these stanzas, each of these four-verse stanzas, highlight a specific blessing from God. And they provide us with the reason to be passionate about God, as well as a way to then live accordingly. So let's get started today. Psalm 84 opens by saying, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praises. These, these first four verses tell us that God dwells among his people. And so how should that then transform how we live? Well, it should provoke us to praise him. God dwells among his people, so praise him. For this son of Korah, his life and his very existence was defined by a place, specifically the temple. Why? Because that's where God was. That's where God's presence was. This son of Korah longed to be there, and that longing changed the way he lived. 
His whole life is given meaning by this place. And he ends verse 4 by saying the ones that get to be in the house of God, they get to be in his presence and worship and praise him. They're the ones who are truly blessed, who are truly happy. They're the ones living the good life. He loves this place. And he seems to know all of its nooks and crannies as he's thinking about it. In verse 1, he refers to your dwelling place. In verse 2, he refers to the courts of the Lord. In verse 3, he refers to your altars. In verse 4, he longs to be in your house. Further down in verse 5 and 6, there's reference to Zion. In verse 10, he says, in your courts and in the house of my God, he loves this place. He longs to be there. Why? Because that's where the presence of God was. Now, on, on the one hand, any good Israelite knew that God could not be contained in one, in one locale. He could not be contained in a box or a house or with a fox or, or in a house or a temple on a hilltop. You know, Solomon even prayed in um, 2 Chronicles 6, but will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house, this temple that I have built. This knowledge right here formed every good Israelite's view of the temple. And yet one of the glories of Israel was that God chose to make his home among them. Even though God is infinite, he chooses to make his home among his people. In a temple, atop a hill in Jerusalem, Zion, the city of David. That was the place where people came to meet God. People who longed for him, who longed to worship him, to know him, to praise him. The psalmist says they are the ones who are truly blessed. It's why he's so excited here. It's why his longing is emotional and even physical. I mean, notice here, his passion even leads him to physical weakness or an uh, overexertion. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. And that's really the key to this psalmist's longing and passion It's for the living God. He loves this place because God himself is there. He's jealous. He's even um, envious, in fact, of the birds making their nest there in the rafters of the temple. If only I could live up there like these birds are. He longs to be that close that often. And so this song this song resonates with what is arguably the central longing of the Bible. To be near God. To be in His presence. Because you see, it's a passion, it's a longing for God's presence that ultimately sustains and centers our waning and our wandering passions. These these verses not only give us a reason to be passionate, 
those reasons then work their way out in how we live. And one of the ways this works its way out is through praise. The psalmist is saying here, if you agree that being in God's presence is the best place you can be, then let's sing. Let's lift our voices and praise God for who He is and what He's done in coming to us and meeting with us and making us His people. So the invitation, the call to worship here is to sing. Have you ever thought about why we gather like this? What, what exactly is it that we're doing here? Why do we come together like this and sing once a week? Honestly, it's weird if you've ever thought about it. It's not like any other gathering on this spinning mud ball. People from all walks of life, different ethnicities, different economic stations, different political persuasions, married, single, young, old. There's something different um, about this gathering. Seemingly random people who gather together and sing. It's weird. And this verse tells us why we do this. Because the majority of us in this room are passionate for the presence of God. And this plays itself out in how we live. We've experienced the grace of His Son Jesus who has called us out of this world, out of the mire of our own sin. Saved us from the penalty due to us because of our sin. So we sing. So we praise the one who has called us from death to life, who has made us alive together with him. Psalm 84 is calling us to worship. God's inviting us into his presence, and the psalmist is saying, come on, let's do this together. So in much the same way it's laid out in your Bible, we're going to say lie here. We're going to take a moment to pause and reflect and evaluate ourselves based on the passion of this pilgrim in these first four verses. Do you long to be with God? Do you long to be with God's people? If no, why not? Do other events take precedent over gathering with the people of God in the presence of God? If so, the psalmist is telling you here that your passions are misplaced. God dwells among his people. God's presence is among his people, so praise him passionately. We're going to take a moment now to reflect and to pray. And then we're, guess, and then we're going to respond by singing and praising him together. So let's take a moment. God, 
I need a favor. And you give me every grace. Though infinite above me in Christ, I see your face. Lord, you are my anchor and we're rooted into place as flocks of every color Twitter nest in his grace. Let's keep going through our passage this morning. These next few verses give us another reason to be passionate for God's presence. We should be passionate because he strengthens his people. Blessed are those whose strength is in you in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Bacah, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. God strengthens his people. So pray to him. In the first stanza, our psalmist was simply thinking about the temple, thinking about the presence of God, remembering the, the, the shape of the room, the smell, remembering the, the people. And in this stanza, he's on his way. And apparently this journey isn't an easy one, as these verses sort of highlight the ways that God strengthens his people on their pilgrimage. Because pilgrimage is his reality in these verses. Where does he turn to for strength? Pilgrimage is our reality now too. Where do we turn to for strength in this life? If someone were to follow your life, you around with a camera, were to watch your life for a period of time, where would they say you find your strength? Is it in your abilities? Is it in your winning smile or personality? Blessed are those whose strength is in you. The people who are living the good life find their strength in God alone. They are utterly dependent on the Lord. This pilgrim here is relying on God to give him the ability to put one foot in front of the other on his journey. His strength is supplied by the Lord, he is blessed. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. And it says they're blessed because in their hearts are highways to Zion. If you're a, if you're a Christian in this room, then in your heart is a highway to Zion, a highway that leads you to God. He should be your ultimate goal. You should want to know him. You should want to fellowship with him. You should want to praise and worship him. In your heart should be a single-minded focus on communing with God, with glorifying him and enjoying him forever. The psalmist says here, that's the blessed man. 
That's the one living the good life. Does your life look like that? In who or what does your dependence lie this morning? In who or what does your affections and passions delight in this morning? Maybe you look at God as as the greatest means to your own ends. So often, because we view God this way, we miss the greatest blessing of the gospel, which is union and communion with God himself, which is delight in God himself, which is reveling and glorifying and enjoying God himself. And this, this psalmist, this doorkeeper, this janitor at the temple understands what it is we as believers should be delighting in. We should delight in God himself. That's the blessed man. The one who depends on the Lord and who delights in him. He's the one who goes from strength to strength. He's the one who appears before God in Zion. That's his reward. God himself is his reward. He wants God. He wants to be with God. He wants to worship God. And God gives him that blessing. Verse 6 and 7 then elaborate on what it means for your strength to be in God. And talks about passing through the valley of Bacah. Now, every commentary I read on this passage offered a different explanation of this valley. So let me just tell you, nobody's quite sure what the valley of Bacah is. It's, it's possible that this refers to a kind of balsam tree that grows in dry and arid lands, kind of like a, a desert-like plant. If you've ever been to Colorado and you've seen an aspen tree, that's a balsam tree. It's also possible that the Valley of Bacah is a real place. That this is what is sometimes called the Rephaim Valley to the west of Jerusalem. And if that's the case, then this pilgrim is imagining having to travel through this dry and arid valley, steadily climbing higher towards Jerusalem. But it's also likely that this is a play on words here. There's another Hebrew word that's spelled slightly differently, but sounds the same. A different kind of valley of Bacah. And that word Bacah, B-A-K-A-H, means weeping. So it may be that the psalmist here is envisioning a pilgrimage that not only means physical difficulty through a a dry land choked with, with, with dust, but he's also envisioning a spiritual journey. One filled with longing and sorrow and hardship. And he sees a parallel between what it's like to climb towards Jerusalem with what it's like to struggle spiritually to draw near to God. It's actually great imagery here if you think about it. Because if this is indeed the valley of weeping, he's envisioning Tears streaming down the cheeks of the pilgrims on their way to to meet with God 
in, in um, Jerusalem. But notice that, that, that tears aren't the only source of water in this valley for pilgrims. They're springs. They're springs that, that have to be dug out. Springs that have to be dug out with faith and perseverance. There's a lot at play with this imagery here. A lot to say about the work needed to persevere on this pilgrimage. To persevere through trials and to stay steady in our faith towards God. But there's also another source of water here too. It says that that the early rain also covers this land with pools. So there's also a kind of faith that waits for God that waits for him to send the rain. Both of these, all of this, take faith. Faith to work and persevere to get the water out of the land and faith to wait for God to send the water from the sky. Sometimes he calls us to work for it. Sometimes he calls us to persevere, to trust him, to dig deep in our Bibles, to memorize it, to study it, to pray, to stand fast, to serve, to run towards fellowship with other believers, even when we don't feel like it. Sometimes it's work. And sometimes he just calls us to wait for him and send rain. And the result of all of this is they go from strength to strength. Now this verse, for some of you, uh, myself included, can be a discouraging one. Because oftentimes I don't feel like I go from strength to strength. This verse to me sounds like some kind of fake rah-rah pep rally where the Christian life is meant to be just some sort of uninterrupted string of triumphs. I'd like to go from strength to strength, but mostly I feel like I just go from weakness to weakness. I wake up tired. I go to bed tired. I feel like I go from failure to failure from sin to sin. I want to do better as a husband. I want to do better as a father. I want to do better as a a Christian in my love for God, in my passion for God. And yet, my passions continuously wane and they wander from weakness to weakness. But this verse isn't about an uninterrupted, victorious Christian life. This is a verse for the needy, for the weak, for the weary, for the worn out. This is a verse for sinners. This is a verse for sufferers, for the the sorrowful. Because you have to take verse 7 here in light of verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. The only way to go from strength to strength is for your strength to be in God. Now, there's, there's a lot of opinions out there on what it means to go from strength to strength, and I've, I've read most of them leading up to this. 
But I think one of the best explanations I've come across has to do with the meaning of this word strength here. Sure, on the one hand, it means exactly what you think it means. But that's not all. You have to remember that, that Jerusalem w- was a walled city. It was a, a hilltop fortress. And the word for strength was also used for the walls of this fortress, the ramparts, the battlements. And so it may be that someone who goes from strength to strength, from wall to wall, from battlement to battlement, that is a person who has come into the city, who has sought to take refuge in God, who has, who has fled from the dangers without to the safety within. And now standing on the wall of the city, looking out at the dangers of this world, they can say with confidence and assurance that they have found safety in the Lord. How do we get to this place of confidence and assurance? Look here at verse 8. It tells us, through prayer, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. This has to be one of the shortest prayers in the Bible. And notice he doesn't actually explain what it is he needs. All he does is um, address God and ask for God's attention. Heavenly Father, look, listen, help. That's what this prayer amounts to, and yet it's full of faith. It has in it both trust in a relationship and confidence in God's power. I mean, just look at the way he, he um, addresses him. O God of Jacob, because he knows that God made a covenant with Jacob, and, and he's simply saying here, look, I'm part of that. I'm Jacob's great, 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 great grandson. I have this relationship too. But he's also aware of God's power here. He calls him, O Lord God of hosts. Now, this word doesn't really serve us well because immediately we think of someone seating us at um, uh, Applebee's or something. Um, Another way this word is often translated is God of armies. And that better captures the kind of power and and, um, authority that's in view here. And the New Testament um, equivalent here is actually whenever Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven. It's the exact same thing. It's from that exact same impulse. Our Father. He has made us His Father. He's brought us into His family. We can approach Him with ease and familiarity. Our Father in heaven. What's in heaven? God is. And He's sitting on a throne. He has power. He has authority. When we pray to God, when we say those simple words, our Father in heaven, we are both calling on the relationship that he's given us through Jesus, and we are expressing the faith that he can actually do the stuff that he hears, that he answers our prayers, 
that he will get stuff done for his glory and for our ultimate good. Aren't you glad this short little prayer is in your Bible? Because how many times have you gotten just that far in prayer? Father, hear my prayer. Maybe you're just tired of praying the same thing over and over again. How many times have you wondered if God hears you? This passion for the presence of God should drive us to seek out the strength of God through prayer. It should change how we live. And so again, we're going to say lie here. We're going to reflect on these four verses, which should lead us to prayer. It should lead us to confession before God. How are your passions different from the pilgrim's passions in these four verses? Is God your ultimate goal today? Or is he just a means to your own ends? Who do you rely on for strength to make it through each day? Is it God alone? Are you wholly dependent on God alone today to take one more step out of your seat? God strengthens his people, so pray to him today. Go to him in confession. Let's take a moment now to reflect and pray, and then we're going to respond by singing and confessing together. Dear God, I need another favor, but what am I to say? That I've lost my Google Maps, therefore I need the way? I journey on parched and tearless. You bring forth springs of life. You speak forth drops of rain, but my prayers are dim of light. Are you listening? Let's finish looking at our last blessing, starting in verse 9. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. The last reason the psalmist gives us for why we should be passionate for the presence of God God blesses his people. So how should we respond? By trusting him. These four verses sound an awful lot like the first four. They're passionate. They have longing. But in the first four, four verses, the psalmist is still far away. In these four verses, he's arrived. And he's looking around at what's before him. And he says, you know what? Just a day here is better than a thousand elsewhere. Now, whenever you think about your perfect day, what do you imagine? 
What does your best day look like? For some of us, myself included, it might be better as one more Netflix episode. For other crazy people, it might be better as one more hour in the gym. Better is. How do you answer that question? We could all fill it in with, we could all fill it in with something. We could all name good things. But you know when your appetites have been rightly ordered. When you can say, all of these things are good, but better than all of them is one day with you, God. I love how Eugene Peterson says this in the message paraphrase. One day spent in your house, this beautiful place of worship, beats thousands on Greek island beaches. That's a great translation right there. Now, I've never been to Greek islands, but it it sounds kind of nice. And what this passage and, and what this is saying here is simply stack them up. Stack up all of the good things in your life. Stack up all of your good experiences. Stack up all the places where you find joy and rest and peace. Stack it all up. And then for good measure, toss in a few more. Better than all of those things is a day with you, God. Better than all of it is to be in your presence. And as our psalmist continues to look around, he sees a temple guard standing nearby, the temple bouncer, who makes sure only the right people come in. He says he'd rather be that guy, working in this place, instead of living it up in the tents of the wicked. It's better to be here. It's better to be near God. Do you see how how his longing for God shapes the way the psalmist thinks and lives? His priorities, his passions have all been radically reoriented to God. He would gladly have this lowly job. He would gladly serve in this lowly capacity just so he can be close to God. There are are just so many good things in these verses. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. He bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. The psalmist is celebrating the Lord's provision here, celebrating the Lord's protection in his and our pilgrimage. God is his shield. God is his protector. He guards him against the assaults of of his enemies. And he is blessed because he trusts the Lord in all of these things. He trusts that the Lord will provide for him. He trusts that the Lord will protect him. And And here's what else these verses tell us. He doesn't deserve any of these blessings. You and I don't deserve any of this. But God has shown us favor and honor. 
Some translations here say grace and glory, cause and effect. He has shown me grace. He has given me favor that I don't deserve. And then I receive honor. I receive glory that I could never attain on my own. Favor and honor, grace and glory. He gives it freely. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. This is such a great promise. And this is a figure of speech we should all be um, familiar with. We, we um, affirm something by denying the opposite. So when someone asks you how the new Spider-Man movie was, some of you might say, it's not bad. What are we saying there? We're saying it's good. If it's not bad, it's good. And yes, I am saying the new Spider-Man movie is not bad. We do this all the time, and our, our, our Bible also does this. So what is the psalmist saying about God whenever he says, no good thing does he withhold? He's saying God is a giver. He's saying God's generous. He's saying God pours out on his people. Not only that, no good thing does he withhold. In other words, he gives us every good thing. And if there is anything that you call good that you feel is somehow lacking in your life, then maybe the Lord has a different assessment of what is good for you. And who is it that God is not withholding these good things from? From those who walk uprightly. This is not for everybody. God is not just indiscriminate with his gifts and his generosity throughout the world. He gives those good gifts to those who walk uprightly. And then the next verse brings clarity to who these people might be. Blessed is the one who trusts in you. We're to take the ending of both of these two lines together. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Blessed is the one who trusts in you. Trust in God, walk uprightly. Two sides of the same coin. There's faith and there's faithfulness. God blesses his people. So trust him today. So trust him. The presence of God for this psalmist is everything. The presence of God should be everything to us. And thankfully, the psalmist doesn't leave us with a vague notion of God's presence. I mean, there's nothing worse than knowing that you're hungry, but not knowing where you want to eat. This is every tragic first date. Where should we go? I don't know. Are you hungry? Yeah. Where do you want to eat? I don't know. Um, this still happens in my family, I'm ashamed to say, pretty regularly. So uh, and it drives my wife crazy. Um, thankfully, the psalmist has no such confusion here. He knows what he's longing for, and he knows where to find it. Even here at the end, he comes back to what he said at the beginning. He says, I know where. It's the courts of the Lord. It's in his house. 
He has a deep longing for it. He knows it's better to be there than to be anywhere else. And so what is the parallel for us today? Where is our temple? The temple in the Old Testament is, is, such, is such a rich and powerful symbol. We know that in, in Genesis, there was a, a design for all of creation to be like a temple. But then post-fall, God says, well, let's just start with one place. Let's start with this dwelling place. And so the temple becomes the center of the universe to Israel. But then Jesus shows up. And in John's gospel, he announces himself as the true temple. I'm the one. I'm the center of the universe. Only Jesus can say that. Only the Son of God can say that. I'm the place where favor and honor meet. I'm the sun and the shield of God. I'm the refuge. So now we don't look to Jerusalem to encounter God. We look to Jesus. Just to burst some of your bubbles, this building is not the temple of God. I know some of you may have been confused. This is not the temple of God. Jesus is. When Jesus died for us and rose from the dead, he replaced the temple with himself. He is the universal Emmanuel God with us. And you see that that longing to be near God is still in us. And we have another opportunity today to draw close to him, whether that's for your first time or for your 10,000th time. In Jesus, we meet God. In Jesus, we know God. In Jesus, we fellowship with God. In confessing him with our mouths and believing in his sacrifice on our behalf, we are able to then confidently draw near to him, experiencing his presence, his grace, his forgiveness, his pardon. Ephesians 2 then tells us that that God, because of what Jesus has done in helping us meet him, is fitting together all kinds of people who look like rough, jagged stones. And somehow he's making this into a beautiful living temple. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. If you're looking for that place where your hunger for God's presence can be satiated, it's the place where the people of God gather in the name of Jesus. That's the church. The presence of God is here among his people among those who claim the name of Jesus. This is where he dwells. This is where the fullness of God's spirit resides. Yes, some of us are weird. Some of us may have even been hurt by people in the church, but God has made this, you and I, his home. 
And we should want to do whatever we need to do to stay close to him. To stay close to each other as we passionately pursue Jesus together. This is where his presence resides in you and I. God has made a dwelling among us in his son, Jesus. This should be enough today to cause us to praise him, to pray to him, and ultimately to trust in him. And so we're going to take a moment to reflect now. Are we indeed fully convinced that God is better than any good gift that we have? Is he better than your better is? Where does your trust really lie this morning? Do you really trust that God will provide for you and protect you? Let's take a moment now. Better is one day with our God than thousands without him. I trust him. I come to him announcing, God, you are my favor. You give me every grace. Though infinite above me in Christ, I see your face. Even in temple worship, there was a, always an altar where, where food was sacrificed. And oftentimes it was consumed by the priests themselves. And so there's something about a table inside of a temple. For us as the church, this is Jesus' table. This is where he spreads for us a great feast of his grace, where he spreads for us a great feast of his mercy. If you don't know this Jesus, take this time instead to pray to him, to call out to him. Use those prayers on the back of your bulletin to help give you words right now. Take Jesus today. For the rest of us, maybe you need grace today in your Baca Valley. Maybe you need some sort of strength to be able to believe God can bring a spring of water out of a valley of tears. You're on a pilgrimage. We're all on a pilgrimage. And this is the place where His, where his presence is specially present. Father, thank you for today for your great grace and your love to us and your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for proving to us in the death and resurrection of your only son and for promising that you will not withhold any good thing from us. Thank you for your word to us today. I pray that it would help our passions, redirect them, reorient them, guide them, fuel them, center them. And Jesus, without your perfect obedience given to us, we would have no hope at all of receiving any sort of blessing from our Heavenly Father. You walked uprightly on our behalf, yet you were treated like a criminal. 
You lost all honor and favor before your Father so that we could live forever as treasured sons and daughters of the King. Now you are glorified and exalted and you have lifted us up and covered our shame with your glory even though we remain sinful. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus, thank you today. Holy Spirit, help us to find our peace and refuge and protection only in God and the eternal victory He won for us on the cross through Jesus. Help us to remember and be grateful that you have done all things well and haven't withheld anything from us. Not one thing that we have ever needed. Continue to give us the grace of your repentance so that we can know your forgiveness. And Father, today, thank you for the weakness that keeps us near the cross. A weakness that marvels at your rich and overwhelming grace to broken sinners like me, like us. Thank you that you hear our prayer today, Father. We cry out to you today, Father. Look, listen, help. We need you today. Thank you that you hear us because of your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we ask that we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Shelby Murphy, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.